All right, episode 154 with Jonathan Goodman is about to start, and this episode is filled with a lot of great information. If you do not know who Jonathan is, you should definitely look him up as he has created one of the biggest resources for continuing education for coaches out there and any coach that's interested in business. But if you are interested at all in entrepreneurship, business, or anything, John is the man to follow. So I was super excited to interview him finally. It only took almost two years of convincing, but I finally got him to say yes. And again, this episode is amazing. Here we go. Here's John. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is John Goodman. Say hello. It's funny because I asked you two minutes ago whether or not profanity was okay, not remembering what the actual name of the podcast was. No, it's all good. Uh, hi, everybody. Good to be here. Um, so like with all my guests, I always ask, what do you got planned for the weekend? This weekend is going to be a light weekend. I just spent a week at the cottage with my wife and with my son. And so um, this weekend, we're just kind of hanging out, doing errands, all the boring stuff of having a family. Awesome. So where are you located right now? Because like you travel quite a bit, so I'm like curious, where are you right now? Right now I'm in Toronto, Canada. This is, I mean, Toronto's my home. Toronto's always been my home, but but yeah, as, as you said, we spent the last six winters away, basically traveled like October, November until March or April the last six years. Um, and we're gonna be away for all of 2019 as well. And, and, and right now it's Mexico, France, Montenegro, Israel, and Spain. Wow. Um, we're going to be in all of 2019. So, uh, but no, right now Toronto, we're like 15 minutes west of the city along the water. It's beautiful. I love it here. Sweet. So now that you've been traveling so much, like when you choose where to go next, do you now just like put a finger on a map and you're like, Hey, that's where I'm going. Like, how do you choose? There's no rhyme or reason around it. Um, everybody asks me like, Oh, what do you do to find places or to, or to travel? I'm like, somebody told me about a place once and it just kind of stuck with me. Now nah, there's no, there's, there's no rhyme or reason. We had to do this trip a little bit different because of the whole Schengen province stuff in Europe. Basically you can't spend, if you spend 90 days in, in almost any European country, you have to spend 180 full days outside of all of Europe. Wow. And, and it's not quite all of Europe. There are some countries that are exempt from it. But that's why we had to kind of do like France on one end and then Spain on the other end. And we're doing Israel and Montenegro in the middle. Montenegro is one of those European countries that's not involved. So so that that played into it. Um, but beyond that, like, I don't know, man. I just I ask people. I speak to a lot of friends of mine that have traveled a lot. asked them what some of their favorite places were. You know, we don't want big towns. Like, I'm not going to Paris. I'm not going to, to Barcelona. We're going to more sort of out of the way. We're, we're, we're interested much more in culture this time around. And so going to, to real operational towns, not kind of tourist villas, you know? Yeah. So how's it been traveling with your son? Like, I'm kind of curious how did that change the dynamic and the whole travel experience? <laughs> we don't go out at night. Yeah. Um, it, it changed it considerably. Well, it's pretty cool. So, so we travel with a lot of friends. Like, we were in Costa Rica for a couple months last year. We had 31 people come through. So we travel with a lot of friends, which means that Calvin's got a lot of aunts and uncles, which is really fun. Beyond that, I mean, just need to be a lot more organized. Um, Calvin as a whole has I, – I, I, I always describe to people what effect Calvin's had on me. He's 14 months as we're recording this for anybody listening. Um, he's – He's a great amplifier, you know, and, and he amplifies what's there, both the good and the bad. 
when it comes to my relationship with my wife, if if there was a closeness there in, in, in any certain aspect, like we've just become so close. I mean, the love for her that I feel now was so much deeper and I, and I couldn't even describe it. I didn't even know it existed, even when we got married, that, that there was a love like this. And, and I mean, that's Calvin amplifying it. But there's also, you know, frictions that, to be honest, we probably never would have had to deal with as a couple if it wasn't for Calvin. But but he amplified them. When it comes to business, it's the exact same way. When it comes to personal organization, it's the exact same way. Like, I think I was pretty good at business beforehand. I think I was pretty good at organizing my time and prioritizing and getting work done. I think I've been I've I've put out quite a bit of high quality work over the years, but nothing could have prepared me for having a child and having a family and 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 how good I had to become and continue to try to become. Like I'm nowhere near what I want to be now, but um, but he's amplified that. So with travel, it's the same thing, man. Um, I, you know, we just we just have to be so much more organized. We can't fly by the seat of our pants the same way as we could before. No, fair enough. And I'm also kind of curious, like when he gets older, like are you going to put him in a traditional like elementary school and stay put, or are you going to continue traveling? You're asking all the hard questions. I, I, I know. Right? <laughs> I have no idea at all. I really don't. I mean, he's 14 months now. We don't need to figure this out for a couple years. Yeah. Um, I think the best education you could possibly give a kid is is traveling and meeting new people and smelling new smells and hearing new sounds and seeing people of different colors and shapes and sizes. And, and you know, I'm, I'm so happy that we're able to give that to him while he's really young. When it comes time for him to be in school, I mean, I don't really care about like junior and senior kindergarten, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I'll travel with him there. Like we can teach him the alphabet. Yeah. What What I think is a little bit more important when when it gets to the point where he starts wanting to have like community and friends and stuff like that. Yeah. So I really don't know. Um, that's a long time from now. You know, the internet is kind of like dog years. So in in four years from now, that's like 30 or 40 years on the internet. My guess is that there will be entire nomadic traveling schools of entrepreneurs that exist. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll be. Maybe we'll stay in a place. Um, I don't know. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, because you're the first time on the show, I would love to get to like a little intro from you, like who you are and how did you get to the industry in the first place, and what made you dive into the online training space and teaching other coaches what you do. Okay. Yeah. I was a personal trainer for about eight years. I studied kinesiology in university. I studied, uh, or I, I worked as a trainer in university as well, became a full-time trainer when I finished university, decided to uh, uh, work out through a session and, and not go back to school, which was something that I was going to do. I was going to do a master's and PhD in muscle phys, decided not to. Reached the point in my career at about 23 years old where I was like, is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Because I was working super long days and I was doing really well. I was I was earning the most that you could earn in Toronto pretty much. I was charging about as much as you could charge. I, I was full with clients. I was referring clients to other trainers and getting a commission for that. And I was managing a group of trainers and getting a bit of a salary for that. So the next logical step would have been to open a gym, but I didn't want to do that. So I started reading all these books on marketing on multiple income streams, blah, blah, blah. I had no idea what to do, but came across one book called um, Multiple Streams of Income by Robert G. Allen, introduced me to the term infopreneuring, which is something at that point, this is like 2008, it wasn't, you know, like, like blogs were out there, but nobody really knew that they were blogs. They were called websites. And so making money online wasn't really understood. Nobody really understood what to do or how to do it. It was kind of this underground thing. 
and uh, and at the center of, of this book it had this like this like image that was a circle and all around it were all the ways that you could make money in infopreneurian and at the center of it like the center of the universe was write a book so i wrote a book for trainers because i was too ignorant not to write a book for trainers at 24 years old called ignite the fire and um, Ignite the Fire has since gone on to be translated to a few languages, it's used in colleges and mentorships worldwide. I mean, it's it, it, it launched my career, it launched my, my website, the Personal Trainer Development Center, and from there, still train people full-time for a couple years. Um, realized that if I wanted to build the website, then I needed to stop training, so I did. And, and I turned into a publisher and a writer full-time. So I now have seven books out. Um, I wrote the first ever textbook for online trainers. Uh, we just created a print newsletter service. Like, like basically, I'm a full-time writer and publisher, and it wow. just so happens to be in the fitness industry. <laughs> nice. Um, so, when you went uh, and wrote "Ignite the Fire," like looking back at it now, is there anything you would change in that book? Or when you go back to it and you're thinking about that time, you're like, "Oh my God, I can't believe I would write something like that or anything like that." <laughs> I mean, I was so unbelievably ignorant, which is. Which is, I think, probably why I did it. I think, I, I I believe very strongly in this thing called the ignorant quotient, which I'm I I have notes on to write a book about at some point. But but I think there's a certain optimism that comes along with ignorance, and I think there's a certain pessimism that comes along with knowing too much about a thing. And I think a lot of the reason why people don't do stuff, don't take on projects that are exciting, dream projects, things that they really truly want to do is because they know too much about it. Um, it's too easy to research. It's too easy to, to, to figure out all of the pieces of the puzzle that would stop you or that confuse you or that make you think that you need to know one more thing before taking action these days. And, um, and so when I wrote the book, it, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but like, man, I had no idea. Like, sure, I'll write a book. I, I have no idea how hard it is to write a book. I didn't know how hard it was. I didn't know how expensive it was. Um, I didn't know what a book should look like or not look like. It didn't matter. I just got home every night and I wrote basically what I did that day. Like, like the process was literally I had a paper on the back of my clipboard as I was training clients. And every time I did anything with that client or dealt with any objection or cued anybody any certain way or anything like that, I just write it down on that piece of paper on the back of my note on the back of my clipboard, and then I'd go home and look at my piece of paper and, and write whatever that was up into a document. And then I had this document. And I was like, okay, well that's kind of cool. Um, I guess I should probably find an editor. So I again, because I was too ignorant to think about why these people should not want to hear from me, I did research, and anybody who I could find that had published a book successfully in the fitness industry, I literally cold emailed and said, can I have an introduction to your editor? I had no idea who these people were, they had no idea who I was. Every single one of them got back to me within two days and introduced me to their editor. And and then I spent a lot of money, you know, I think it was 7,500 bucks on, on editing of it. And uh, put it out into the world, mailed a copy to everybody whose address I could possibly get. Um, and the book, you know, it was a combination of luck and skill. The book was the book was good at the time. It wasn't great. It's better now because we did a revised and updated version. But it was good enough. But it was also it was very timely. And this is the luck element. And I think a lot of people who have had any success are very are very cautious to say that they were lucky. I'm very open to say that I was lucky. I was the first real person who published the notion, and this is basically the theme of that book that the importance of the quality of the workout that a trainer gives to a client 
pales in comparison to the importance of your ability to get a client to want to do that workout. And, and, and the specifics of the exercise doesn't really matter. And at the time, nobody was really talking like that. I mean, you, you hear now, it's like, yeah, of course, adherence, that's, that's what matters. At the time, it wasn't like that. And there were a lot of coaches kind of in the know that really got behind the book because it articulated their unspoken frustration with the, with the industry. And that's luck. I mean, that's just timing, um, which was cool. But I can't say that that was by design. Oh, fair enough. I'm kind of curious, too, is, like, you brought up ignorance. Like, would you say that that ignorance you had was kind of the reason for your success? Because I know a lot of coaches, when they read stuff from other people, they're like, oh, you always have to stay humble. You always have to stay humble. But they might go too far right to a point where they don't think they're good enough, and they might not ever come out with their book or product or whatever they're going to do. Like, is there, like, a fine line, do you think, of, like, being ignorant and humble at the same time? I don't think you have to stay humble. I think all writers have egos. I think that ego is necessary for producing quality work. I don't. I think you should feed your ego. I think you should you should understand your place and your position at any one point in time. I think you should appreciate it. Absolutely. I mean, I'll step back and I'll say, "Holy crap! I woke up this morning and I had four messages from four people in four different parts of the world telling me that they benefited from something I did." Like, I'll take a step back and I'll speak to my wife and I'll be like, "This is incredible." But that's not being humble. That's being appreciative. That's being grateful. And I think there's a big difference. Um, you mentioned the ignorance thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think I think a healthy dose of ignorance is always good to have. But I think it can also be dangerous. I mean, the, the whole idea with that ignorance quotient is like, you obviously need to know enough about something so that you don't make a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I feel like there's probably a point that you could actually quantify. I just haven't figured out how, where you know enough to take action, and any more information that you figure out about this thing would actually be a detriment at that point in time. And then as you progress, you basically need to acquire a little bit more knowledge to keep you going. But but you don't want to know too much more because that would stop you from from continuing to move. And and obviously I'm still trying to figure this out, but but where I'm at now is you need to kind of know the rules first. You need to acquire the skills first, and you need to understand that in this world we live in of, of unlimited opportunity, there are always chances to mitigate loss, to minimize loss and maximize gain. And so if you can create a situation where you know that you're going to get a disproportionately large return for time and money invested, so that if you lose, it's not a big deal. But if you win, you're going to win big and outdo all of your losses, then you're always going to win. I mean, that's the Nassim Talib anti-fragile. It's, it's basically... Anybody who tells you that they knew what was going to happen in the future are either disillusioned or liars. They don't. We're not a rational species. We're not an irrational species. We're a post-rationalizing species. We can only make sense of things that happened in the past. And then when, when something happens in the past, we're very good at establishing logical narratives of why it happened and pretending like we knew it was going to happen all along. But we didn't. Nobody does. You have no idea what it's, it's The future is too unpredictable. And so in knowing that and appreciating that, the only way to ensure that you're going to win is to appreciate that it's unpredictable. 
and create create around everything that you do a system whereby if this thing wins, it wins huge. And if it loses, it's not a huge deal. Um, so I think as long as those things are in place, you can be optimistically ignorant. And that's actually a positive. All right. I like that. Um, I'm also curious about, like, where did this, like, entrepreneurial, like, DNA come from? Because, like, for me, the the reason why I work hard and why I put so much effort into everything I do is because I grew up with immigrant parents. And that was just, like, instilled in me that you need to work hard and nothing's going to be given to you in this life without hard work. So I'm kind of curious, like, how was your, like, upbringing as a kid or, like, did something, like, trigger you that hey, if I work hard, I can get this thing. You know what? It didn't. It's, it's, I'm so happy you brought this up. I was on a podcast a while, this is a couple of years ago, and I'll never forget this. They asked, they asked me this question um, about a time when I have overcome adversity, mm-hmm. and they asked me to describe it to them. And I refused to answer the question because I knew I knew the the two people who were interviewing me. I knew a little bit about their story, and like they had been through some real stuff. You know, they were they were in gangs and they were young. Like they were basically forced into gangs and drug trading. And they were young and, and really really serious stuff. And they found their way out of it. And they overcame real adversity. And I I, I basically said I'm not going to insult you by saying that anything that I've been through has been anywhere close to. You. I mean, of course, there's been little struggles here and there, but the reality of it is, I come from a reasonably affluent family in suburbia Toronto. I, I'm the youngest of four children, so by the time I came along, my parents were pretty chill and laid back and kind of knew what knew what the story was. I've got three amazing older siblings. My entire family is dependent, is 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 self-dependent, you know, married happily with kids, my three siblings. My parents are amazing. They're still together. They still love each other. Like I don't it, it didn't come from that. Um, and and also to, to add to that uh, my every adult I ever knew growing up was a professional, was a lawyer, doctor, dentist, accountant, teacher, blah, blah, blah. My mom's a teacher. My dad was an engineer and became a consultant. My sister's a lawyer. My brother's a teacher. My other brother's a banker. And then there's me, and I can't describe what I do for a living. So, so where the heck did that come from? I really don't know. Um, if I go back... To high school and to university, it becomes pretty clear that I was never good at listening to other people. I mean, I'm I'm not employable because I'm just not. Um, <laughs> and 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 you know, I'd be the kid who would who would read a textbook for a course I'm not taking because I found it more interesting than than the exam that I had the next day. If there was if there was a course that was interesting in university, like like advanced muscle physiology, I'd get a 97%. A bird course I didn't care about, I'd get a 61. I was just that kind of is is how I always thought for some weird reason. Um, and then as I started to work, I started to just recognize that there were a lot of opportunities and things, and 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 I have no idea where it came from. Um, but when I recognized it. I thought, okay, well, how can we have some fun with this? And that's still kind of my my approach now to business. It's like, how can I have fun with what I'm doing? And it, it's not sort of an entrepreneurial thing. I'm fortunate now that that make enough money that I don't need to worry about that. It's it's the art in the thing. I love the writing. I love the publishing. I love the work that we're producing. I love maximizing every touch point. I love talking about 
the the intricacies of the paper stock and the typography that we produce this stuff on and with and and how that's going to impact the reader experience and 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 that's what i love you know it's not the entrepreneur stuff it's not necessarily how we're going to make money in that stuff that's not i think at a certain point anybody who runs a business that actually is fulfilled by that business realizes that it's not the money in it that fulfills them it's it's the purpose in it it's it's the art in it that kind of fulfills them oh fair enough um the other question i wanted to ask you is like now that you know online training is a thing like almost everybody wants to become an online trainer would you say it's like was it easier back 10 years ago to start an online training company compared to as now? Because there's so many people like all over Facebook saying like, hey, taking three clients, sign up on my application form here. Like, what's your thought on that? My thought on that, I've got a couple pieces on that. I will start by debating your original question, which is not everybody wants to be an online trainer. Most people don't even know that it exists. The the internet world that we live in um, creates all of these what's called filter bubbles. Um, there's the person who originally coined that term is named Ellie Pariser. He uh, basically wrote a book called The Filter Bubble and then um, started a website based on the theory called Upworthy that became the fastest growing website in the history of the internet. So it's a pretty powerful theory. And the idea with the filter bubble, simply put, is that there's no search anymore. It's reverse search. The algorithm dictates what we see, who we see. And and that's all predicated upon what types of things the system has established that we like and that we agree with. Because we buy things if we see things that we like and we agree with. And in in any system where you're not paying for the, the product or the software, um, you're not the customer, you're the product being sold. So in order to maximize ad revenues, the only thing that, that's responsible that these companies can do, Google, Facebook, et cetera, is show you things that are consonant to your existing belief patterns. Show you things that you think that, that it thinks that you're gonna like. And so, we see people like us. We see ideas like we already agree with. We see items that we already like. I, I say this all because these bubbles that we exist within, it can be very easy to pretend or to think that there's nothing else out there. Um, and that, that this bubble that we exist within, no matter how small, is our universe. Our universe is online training, is everywhere. Take one step outside of it. Ain't nobody's heard of online training. They don't even know it exists. Walk down the street and ask people if you can train online, and they say, what do you mean, streaming workouts? <laughs> you know, they, they, they have no clue that it exists. Um, walk into any gym and ask people if they know what online training is, and they'll all kind of shake their head and say, yes, of course, but then you ask them anything about it and they have no clue. So, so I would debate your question. Mm -hmm. um, it may seem like it's saturated. It's not at all. And, and and we're just getting started. I mean, the fitness industry is young. The fitness industry only was born in the 1970s. Like, do you know any retired personal trainers? I don't. It's a brand new industry. So it's, it's so silly to me to even begin a conversation about something being saturated. Um, so, so, so no, it's not. Now, how has it changed? I think the state of awareness in the marketplace has changed considerably. You know, when I when I started teaching people how to become an online trainer, first course that I put out on this was 2013. As far as I know, it was the first course put out on that. And at that point, my job selling the course 
was to sell people on the idea of online training. I mean, I was the first person to speak for the NSCA, for the ACSN, and I'm going to be the first person to speak for CSAP here in Canada on online training. Three of the, in, in the United States and Canada, the three most science-based certification companies that are out there um, are just now opening themselves to business. But at the time, I had to convince trainers that they could responsibly train people online. And I had to convince also very seasoned trainers and professionals that, that you could do a very good job and that it was beneficial and that you could actually do well with it. Like, like that was my job in the beginning. My job now is to show people that there's a whole bunch of folks who have no idea what the heck they're talking about trying to teach you how to do this thing because they've done something that works for them, post-rationalized it, created a logical narrative around it, spun it up into this little system that may work today but is going to fail tomorrow because something's going to change, and they're trying to sell it to you as opposed to taking the knowledge and the wisdom from thousands of people over, what, five and a half, six years now, writing the first ever textbook created the gold standard curriculum for this thing and saying, hey, there's no one way to do this. The best way is the perfect way for you. So here are all the rules. Here are all the skills you need. And here's a very direct path to building out your perfect model. Both, both, both to train people and your business model. Um, so, so my job has changed quite a bit as somebody who teaches it because of the state of awareness in the marketplace, because of the maturation in the marketplace. Of trainers are now actively looking for it and convinced it's probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now my job is to make sure that they're not steered the wrong way. Oh, fair enough. Um, the other one that I wanted to bring up is like when you first started the Online Trainer Academy, did you think that it was going to like blow up so fast? Because I, I think I saw the email that you guys had out that you know, had to go back to the printers and get more textbooks done because so many people signed up. Like, Did you think it was yeah. going to be that big that fast? Well, I, I, I didn't. I didn't. Um, the Online Trainer Academy is the evolution of a previous program that we did. So we had a program called 1K Extra that we released in 2013. The Online Trainer Academy is the certification that was born out of that that first got released in 2016. So really the program has been evolving since 2013. I think the most important thing, I mean, we'll get into internet marketing now for a minute. I think the most important thing whenever you're launching anything is in in dictating whether it's going to be successful or not is repeatability of that launch. You know, there's a lot of people who can launch something once simply because they built up enough of an audience that's gonna buy whatever they do. When push comes to shove is when they go to release it a second time. Because then your best buyers who have been following you potentially for years have already bought or already decided they're not going to buy. And in between that time from the first to the second launch, have you been able to generate the desire amongst a new group of people in order to buy that thing again? That's That to me is what really matters. And so I had repeated, and, and we've grown every launch that we've done of 1K Extra since 2013. We did six launches of that from 2013 to 2016. And, and it had grown every time. So so I knew that releasing OTA, like we were gonna find an audience for it. Um, the difficult thing though, when going from a digital program to a physical program, is that you now have to do print runs. And a print run for a textbook is no easy thing. The textbooks cost me $35 a pop to print. Not only that, um, it's at minimum six week turnaround time to print. Minimum, usually more than that. 
So it becomes really difficult. Obviously, if I put too few, it's a big issue. But if I put way too many, then it's also a big issue. Um, because now we're sitting on, on potentially tens of thousands of dollars of inventory that we can't move. So, um, so at, you know, when we first launched it, I, I, I underestimated. Um, now I'm a bit more accurate. I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you about how many people are going to sign up in September. Um, you know, based off of our list, based off of conversions that we've seen, I can tell you about how many you're going to do it. So, so we'll print about the right number of textbooks. But, um, but yeah, that's 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 what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> now, like, I'm kind of curious too, is like your kind of prediction for the future of the online space, because I'm I'm always thinking about like five years down the road, how will online training look? Will more people kind of use it as you know, a thing like a part-time thing and then still train in person? Or is there going to be a new app that comes out that can scan an exercise for you or anything like that? Like, do you have any, I don't know, gut feeling where the online industry will go? Yeah, I would, I, I'd like to think that it's more than a gut feeling. Um, I think the, the best way to try to predict the future is to understand the past. That's why history is so interesting. And if you look at the history of the fitness industry, there's basically been a pendulum swinging since the 1970s when Cooper wrote cardio, which is where the term cardio came from. There's basically been a pendulum swinging back and forth, back and forth. And and it, and it swings and it goes side to side, you know, from, from metabolic to functional to P90X to insanity to CrossFit to eggs are good to eggs are bad to eggs are good but only the egg whites to well actually the egg yellows are better than the egg whites to just eat the whole damn egg you know the the pendulum just kind of swings back and forth and then it starts to rest in the middle a little bit and then something comes along and knocks it far off to the side again and and we've seen this happen over and over and over and over again and what's fascinating about it is that if you go to other other countries or other places in the world, like what's happening in India right now is basically what happened in the United States in like, I would say the the, the mid to or the early 2000s, where they've kind of been through their bodybuilding golden era mm -hmm. stage. And now they're going through like kind of a mobility, like functional movement stage. You know, they're like, they're, they're sort of four or five years behind where we are. And so I know a lot of people are actually flocking out to, to India and Asia because you can just you know exactly what's coming next, right? Based off of what's happened here, which is really interesting. So so I say all that because you know, there's there's a lot happening in the fitness industry right now. Online training is like the hot thing, but the reality of it is it's starting to settle back in the middle. And I think it will just sit there. And, and what I've said all along is it's just going to be another thing. You know, if you picture a pie chart and that pie chart is every single deliverable method of fitness that we have, the reason that there's still such a large percentage of the population that's sedentary or that relapses into inactivity is not due to a lack of good information is not due to a lack of good people. I think it's due to a lack of delivery methods. I think just different people respond to different stimuli, need different types of guidance and support and accountability. And online training is just another piece of that. So it's the same, you know, you mentioned wearables and apps and there's this whole quantified self movement, 
whenever a new app comes out, people are like, is this the death of personal trainers? It's like, no, idiot, it's not. It's just another thing. The type of person who wants to wear a watch that's going to tell them everything about themselves is not the type of person who wants a trainer standing beside them. They're just different personalities. And so online training is just a different thing. It's, it's right for some trainers. It's not right for other trainers. It's right for some clients. It's not right for other clients. And we, we got to the point where, um, where the pendulum was so far on one side where every single trainer was like, this is the hottest thing ever. I don't need to work. And now enough trainers have been like, well, actually, I do need to work. Uh, so maybe this isn't for me. And then other trainers are like, well, I do need to work, but like this is actually working really nicely for me. And now everybody new coming in is seeing those two conversations and making a more educated decision of whether it's right for them or not. And, I, I, you know, that's what's happening. Um, and, and I'm happy for that. And I think that's where it will sit for, for the foreseeable future. Okay. I wanted to talk about like your printed newsletter because like when I first saw that that was coming out, I'm like, man, this is such a great idea. Because anytime I get a piece of mail from like, you know, thank you for coming to our wedding, you actually want to open it and read it. Whereas like everything else you get, you're like, I'm just gonna throw this away. So yeah. I was like, this is a brilliant idea. And <laughs> I was just like wondering, like, how did you like come to that point where like, you know what, I'm gonna start mailing things to people. <laughs> oh man. Um... It is so unbelievably complicated and expensive and risky to do that, which I think has a lesson in and of itself. You know, you, you, you spoke about like, like taking on a project. This has been a good example of that for me. Um, as you become more successful and, and, and fill your coffers and, and have more cash reserves, you can afford to take bigger risks. And, and I've always said, I've said since like 2012, I think was the first time that I wrote this line, is that freedom is providing yourself the opportunity to fail. I think, I think it's really important to continue to give yourself opportunities to try new things. And as you, as you have some successes, you provide yourself opportunities to try even bigger things. You know, with this newsletter, if we didn't get a thousand subscribers at 40 bucks a month, we were going to shut it down and refund every single person who bought. It just it wouldn't have been financially viable, and and we did that and we blasted past that at the launch, but the reality of it is, I had no idea how the marketplace was going to respond to it. I felt like I read the market right, you know that there was there's, my my feeling was that there was this bubbling frustration underneath the surface where there were a huge batch of trainers who just really 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 wanted to get better and know more and 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 up their skill set when it comes to marketing and business knowledge. And they're trying, and they're so frustrated because they're so overwhelmed. And so I started to study overwhelm, I started to study fear, and I realized that the, the problem with the infiniteness of information online is exactly that, is that it's infinite. When there's no finality to information that you consume, there's always one more thing you need to do. There's always a related article. There's always one more person or one more podcast to listen to. And that presents a huge problem of inaction. So we decided to do this newsletter where the the stated promise of it is if you don't do anything else each month other than read this newsletter start to finish, know that you've done enough to develop your skill set and drive your business forward for that month. And you can feel it. Right? You, you close that last page, the book is finished. You're done. There's no related articles. And that's the beauty of it. So 
So I thought that it was really important for the market to have it, and 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 it, people are absolutely loving it so far. You know, it's it's brand new. We've only sent out the first month, but it's finding its place really, really, really well. Um, and then from my own angle, from a marketing angle, the writing's on the wall, man. Like like we can get into marketing right now. Organic reach is basically kaput on social media. I don't care what you say. Instagram is going to be kaput in about three months. Uh. Ad spend is exploding. You know, since January, we're recording this in July, since January of 2018, cost per thousand impressions and cost per click have gone up three times, and it's an exponential curve. People who, who depend on cold traffic to build their business that don't have an extremely robust back end will all be bankrupt in 10 to 15 months. Wow. Just, just, it, it's going to be so expensive to acquire a customer that, that you just can't compete. Um, email deliverability rates are plummeting with increasingly robust spam filters and promotion filters and things like that. So even if you can get somebody on your Facebook page, even if you can get their email, you may not still be able to talk to them. Even if you do get your email in their inbox, people don't want emails anymore. Your email inboxes is overwhelm, is clutter. There's so much junk and crap there that that it's pretty rare for somebody to actually look forward to getting emails no matter how much they want to hear from a person. So I started looking at all these things and I was like, well, how do we oppose that? How do we become a welcome visitor to people's houses and provide them something that they want, that they're gonna consume, while also getting them to think of us more than they think of anybody else? And, and, and I just kept going back to this experience that I had where there was so much that I wanted to read. I had saved all of these articles in Evernote. I had, you know, a couple email subscriptions to people who I actually wanted to hear from. I had bought this course that I that I wanted to do, this this digital thing that had ebooks and stuff like that. And then I got and so I got home and I was looking forward to do it. And then I got a flyer in the mail about a company I didn't give a shit about that I didn't ask to get. That was nothing but pure advertisement. And I sat at the kitchen table and I read this stupid thing. <laughs> It completely usurped all of this digital material that I actually was interested in. And I was like, man, there's something there. What if we actually can send people something that they want? What's going to happen? You're going to get something read the second you send it. Cover to cover. And that's what we're seeing. So, so from a marketing standpoint, now instead of sending people a newsletter via email that they didn't pay for, that we're spending a tremendous amount of money to put together that they don't even care about or want. They're paying us to send them a newsletter in the mail. That's awesome. It's pretty helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so last question, because I know you need to jet out here, but um, I think you answered this really well. and. I asked this, I think, to one other person, and he also gave a pretty good answer to it. But what do you want your legacy to be after you're done and finished with the fitness industry? John was a guy who had fun, who explored. That was about it. All right. I'm, like, I'm just having fun, yeah. honestly. Um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly confident saying this. It's completely irrelevant that I'm in the fitness industry. It's, it's, it's where I am, it's what I know best. Mm -hmm. But at this point in time, for me, I care deeply about it, I care deeply about the people in it, but it's a playground. It's, it's, it's a place where I get to experiment, it's a place where I get to 
um, see the fruits of my labor. We get to see things in people's hands. We get to see and speak to people who are successful. But my joy, my personal joy in what I do, which which is really all that I do it for, like everybody's like, oh, write for your audience. Now I write for me, selfishly. And that's how I write best. And that's completely counterintuitive to the advice that anybody's going to give you. And when I produce things, I produce things because I love them, because I really want to see them in the world. And anybody else who wants to come in and join that with me is more than welcome. But even if they didn't, I'd take great joy into it. And so so I think, I, I think your legacy question is not really that appropriate to me because I don't think that I really care about a legacy. Mm-hmm. I care about the work. And that's what drives me, and that's what I find purpose in, and that's what I enjoy, and that's what I love playing around with. And um, and and the fitness industry to me is just it's it's a playground. It's it's a place to explore. All right. So very last question: Where can people find you online? What projects do you have coming out? And anything else you want to plug? You can do that right now. <laughs> you can you can find me online at the Personal Trainer Development Center. I'm sure you're going to put some links and stuff yeah. in there. Personal Trainer Development Center or OnlineTrainer.com, and from there you can find out anything else you want about me. We've got everything from Facebook groups to books to certification in online training to, like we spoke about, a paid print newsletter. Awesome. So thank you so much for all your time. This was amazing. You got it. Thank you. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 154 with Jonathan Goodman. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. And again, Share, share, share this podcast with your friends and family and every single social platform out there so we can grow this thing, reach more people, help more people, and that is the sole basis of why I'm doing this. And again, if you were not signed up to the Cut the Shit Get Fit newsletter, the link is in the show notes. Put your name and email in there, and I will give you some great info every single Monday. And that is it for me. Feel free to reach out, ask a question, just say hi, add me on Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want to do. I'm here to help you, and that's it for me. Until next week, you guys.